speaker presenter Lyle Southwell presenting the ancient codes of Bible prophecy in his live series called The Prophetic Code. You'll be amazed as he cracks the ancient codes of Bible prophecy in ways you have never heard before. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the opportunity of being able to study this most important subject, a subject which has to deal with the end of time and a subject that affects every single one of us here. And Father, we pray that in a very special way that as we study your word this evening, that once again, you'll send the presence of your Holy Spirit. Once again, you'll surround us with the presence of your holy angels. And once again, you'll draw very close to us as we read and study and share your word together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the seal of God and the mark of the beast. If we trace back through the ancient empires of the past, beginning with ancient Egypt and even going before that to ancient Babylon, and then work our way through down many of the large world empires, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. We find a whole series of empires that are built around the principles of globalism. As we study each one of these empires, we find that they reveal what is taking place in our world right now. You see, once again, if you can understand the past, if you understand the history, you can see what is taking place right now. Of course, if we go back to ancient Rome, we find that Rome was probably the most successful empire ever built on the principles of globalism. Rome was three times bigger and lasted three times longer than any of the empires that came before it, before it eventually collapsed. What we find today is the success of Rome is being repeated in our world right now. People who want to build a globalist system in our world today are looking to ancient Rome as a pattern and as an example of how to accomplish globalization. Now, in ancient Rome, Rome thrived on a multicultural, multi-denominational, multi-religious society, culture. And the question is, with all of those different nationalities and all of those different religions, how were they able to tie it all together? You see, back in the past, they said that all roads led to Rome. Well, it wasn't the only thing that led to Rome. It wasn't just all roads that led to Rome. All religions were centered in Rome. And as you'll find, as the Roman, world, the Roman armies went through the ancient world, conquering one nation after another, as they conquered each nation, they would license the religions of those nations. You see, their philosophy was, if we can conquer your gods, why should we be scared of them? But that wasn't all that was involved in the system of ancient Rome. Ancient Rome discovered that nearly all religions had a number of things in common. They found that throughout the world you could travel pretty much anywhere and you would find that everybody worshipped the sun in one form or another. Not only did they all worship the sun, but they all worshipped the queen of heaven who was also referred to as the mother of God, Ishtar, Artemis, Astarte, Semiramis, whatever name you want to call her by, and of course, her son Tammuz. Now, she was spoken of as being, in the past, the 
mother of God because supposedly Nimrod, who had ascended to the sun, had impregnated her and the child that she gave birth to, his name was Tammuz, was supposedly the son of the sun. Now, because they were all sun worshippers, it was also universal through the ancient world. They all worshipped on the same day of the week. The fascinating thing is how these principles were used as imperial Rome began to come to an end. You see, early Christianity posed a major threat to imperial Rome. You see, he was a religion that did not worship the sun, that did not worship the queen of heaven, and worshipped on a different day of the week. All of the principles that they had used that were unifying principles in the ancient world were now gone. And so what were they going to do? And as Christianity rose to power, it threatened the existence of the ancient mystery religions. In fact, in a few centuries, they could see that their religion was on the verge of collapse. And as Christianity spread through the empire, the old imperial Roman system began to collapse. And so what were they to do? There were a number of different things that took place at this particular time. The priests of the mystery religions recognizing that their religions had a limited lifespan decided that to preserve their religion, they would take their religion and they would place it inside of Christianity and thus preserve it for future generations. Now, of course, the mystery religions by nature were a two-tier system of religion. You had the religion that was uh, available to the masses, what everybody had, and then you had the mysteries that only the initiated knew about. And because of this, they were able to take Christianity and place it right in the center, in the heart of paganism. And so we find a time period where paganism began to flood into the church. One of the examples of that, of course, if we go back to ancient Greece, we find the greatest of the Greek temples, the temple of Artemis or Diana in Ephesus. And this particular temple here was one of the wonders of the ancient world, one of the greatest temples ever built. Now here the Greeks worshipped Artemis or Diana, Ishtar, as she was variously named, the queen of heaven and the mother of God. And it was right here in the year 431 that a change took place. You see, the names and titles of Artemis, Diana, were transferred and they were given to Mary. Now you wonder, well, what was going on here? Well, you wonder where Mary got these titles from today? Well, that's where those titles originated from. This was something that was taking place across the board. In the ancient world, the ancient gods were being renamed and being called saints. In fact, one historian described it this way. He said, the new Christians were, as far as thinking and habits went, the same old pagans. Their surge into the churches did not wipe out paganism. On the contrary, hordes of baptized pagans meant that paganism had diluted the moral energies of organized Christianity to the point of impotence. The interesting fact is that if you study 
the history of Christianity at this particular time. It formed a new kind of Christianity from which if you were to remove everything that originated with paganism, there would be nothing left. And so drastic changes took place within Christianity. During the Dark Ages, of course, many of this was hushed up, so to speak, and hidden in a mystery style of religion where only those in the inner circle really, truly knew what was taking place. But all the way down through the centuries, there have been people who have been very aware of what was taking place. Conrad Muth, writing to a friend during the Dark Ages, made this statement right here. There is but one God and goddess, but many are their powers and names. Jupiter, Sol, Apollo, Moses, Christ, Luna, Ceres, Proserpina, Pelus, Mary. He continues on. He says, but have a care in speaking these things. They should be hidden in silence, as are the Aleutian mysteries. Sacred things must needs be wrapped in fable and enigma. In other words, you can't let the general population realize that our religion today is actually a pagan religion with pagan origins. As the different gods of the pagans received saintly names, their images and statues were moved into the churches. And here we have an example where you have Jupiter who has moved from his church, his temple, I should say, here in Rome, moved up to the, the uh, head of the Roman Catholic Church at that time and renamed St. Peter. And you can go to St. Peter's Basilica today. And there you can see as the centerpiece of that basilica, you can see the statue of Jupiter right there with a long line of people lining up to kiss the foot of the statue of Jupiter, now called St. Peter. Now I've been told that his foot has had to be replaced five times because people have kissed and kissed and kissed until they have actually worn it away. And when I was there recently, it's probably about due to be replaced again. And so we find that paganism entered into the church. Now the Bible speaks about this concept of paganism entering into the church. Let's read about it in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 17. And I want you to notice what it says over here in Revelation chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17, and notice with me, we'll start reading in verse 1. Speaking of the Antichrist, this time under the symbol of the great harlot, the Bible says, And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come here, I will show unto you the judgment of the great harlot that sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk, with the wine of her fornication. I want you to notice here, the Bible describes the great harlot. And the Bible says that the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk. They are intoxicated with the wine of her fornication. Now, Revelation is a symbolic book. The great harlot is a symbol. We have to then ask ourselves this question right here. When the Bible speaks about alcohol, what is the Bible actually talking about symbolically? The answer is found if we turn our Bibles to the book of Isaiah. If you do go to the middle of the Bible, 
You find the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 29. And let's see what alcohol symbolizes in the Bible. Isaiah chapter 29, that's page 288, page 288. Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 9, the Bible says, Stay yourselves and wonder. Cry you out and cry. They are drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with strong drink. So here you have some people who are deeply intoxicated, and yet they have not been imbibing alcohol. So what is it that has made these people intoxicated? The answer is found if we go down and look at the context a few verses down from here. In verse 13, notice what it says in verse 13. It says, Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near to me with their mouth, and with their lips to honor me. They have lots of good things. Oh, yeah, we love God. We serve God. Say lots of good things about God, but have removed their heart far from me. And their fear, their honor toward me is taught by the teachings of men. Notice what it is right here that has caused these people to be intoxicated. The Bible says it is the teachings of men. Alcohol in the Bible symbolizes the teachings of men. Now, Jesus makes this even more specific. If we go over to the book of Matthew, it's not just the teachings of men. Matthew chapter 15. And here we find Jesus speaking about the commandment that says, you shall love your father in honor, your father and your mother. And in Matthew chapter 15, he finds a group of people who have found a loophole so that they don't actually have to follow this commandment, supposedly. In verse 7, he describes those who are breaking the commandments of God. And he says, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, this people draw near unto me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, but in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Notice Jesus brings up the issue of worship here, which is the central issue in the book of Revelation, in the book of Daniel, at the end of time, it is all about worship. And notice that worship is associated with obedience. And here Jesus says, if your obedience is based around the teachings of men that cause you to break the commandments of God, then your worship is vain. Now that's strong language, but that's what Jesus says says. Now, if we go back to the ancient world and we look at our world today, we have discovered a number of things about our world today. We live in a world where the Bible says that the whole world is being gathered together against God. We can see globalization taking place around us. The Bible does not just speak about political unity taking place at the end of time. It also speaks about a coming together, a gathering together of the world's religions. Today we call that the ecumenical movement. Now, of course, there has been some aspects of the ecumenical movement that have been good. You know, we are past the bad old days when people hated each other and fought each other, generally speaking, in most countries, over religion. And we want to keep it that way. However, the ecumenical movement at its heart is based around the fulfilling of Bible prophecy, the coming together of religions at the end of time. 
And when we look at globalism today, we find that it, has been, that it is being mirrored by what is mirroring Imperial Rome in the past. And so as Imperial Rome identified three things that everybody had in common, globalism today is identifying certain elements that everybody has in common and using those elements to create unity. Notice this here if we go back to Diana, Artemis of the Ephesians and her temple in Ephesus. When the names and titles of Diana and Artemis were transferred from her to Mary, a church, the Church of Mary was built nearby and there are the ruins of it are there today. And as the Church of Mary was built there nearby, it was in honor of this particular event. It's interesting day to day, if you go to Turkey, notice how the Turks today actually advertise this particular part of the world. Notice what, notice what this particular brochure right here advertises. Ephesus, let's meet in the place where the religions have met, where paganism and Christianity came together. Now, this principle is still being used in our world today. The same kind of context. You see, if you go there today, you'll find this small uh, chapel here. This, of course, is uh, the Black Madonna. And if you go there, you have this statue of Mary. And right there in this small building where the statue of Mary is, if you turn just to the left of this statue, you will find a sacred book. Here it is, sitting on a table. Now, let me ask you the question. What book do you think this is right here in the church of Mary beside her statue? No, that's not the Bible. That is the Quran. And what you find is this is one of the most sacred sites of Muslims to go and do a pilgrimage to. And you ask the question, well, how can that be so? How is that possible? Well, friends, very simply, we need to understand some of the other names of Mary. You see, Mary is also known as Our Lady of Fatima. Isn't that so? Do you know who Our Lady of Fatima is? Our Lady of Fatima is Muhammad's daughter. And Mary today is being used in an incredibly powerful way to draw the world's religions together. Even the evangelical churches are getting involved. Notice this statement right here. We do not consider the practice of asking Mary and the saints to pray for us as communion dividing. This is an evangelical statement. We believe that there is no continuing theological reason for ecclesial division on these matters. In fact, if you go to Europe and you look at the European Union flag, have you ever wondered what the origin of the European Union flag is? Well, if you ask the creator of that particular flag, he says that he was inspired by Mary. And you will typically find this blue background surrounded by stars behind the head of Mary. And so Mary is seen as the unifying force in our world today amongst many of the religions and political powers, just as she was way back in the past 
when she was given the titles of Artemis or Diana, Astarte, Ishtar, who was the great unifying force of imperial Rome. What took place in the past is taking place today. Now, of course, we mentioned that they were also united in that they all worshipped the sun. And because they all worshipped the sun and the days of the week were named after the sun and the moon and the stars, the planets, etc., they found that the world is generally all worshipped on the same day of the week. Of course, Dies Solus, the venerable day of the sun. This is one of the reasons why the Jews were so bitterly persecuted because unlike the rest of the world, they actually worshipped on a different day of the week. Everybody else worshipped on Sunday. And so they're able to use this as a unifying force. Is that still being used in our world today? I find this interesting statement on Barack Obama's website where it says perhaps we should consider enacting a Sunday law not to restrict people from working but to give liberty to those who can't choose. People still have the same concept in their minds today about bringing the world together on points of unity. And of course, this whole concept right here has a direct bearing on our subject today as we move on to look at how ancient Rome is affecting us in relationship to the seal of God. So let's now turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7, and here in Revelation chapter 7, we're going to read about the seal of God. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 1, the Bible says, And after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Notice what is taking place right here. Just before the return of Jesus Christ, there is an angel who goes out to seal God's people. It goes on, it says, And I heard the number of those which were sealed, and there were sealed 144,000 of all the tribes of Israel. Now, before we go any further into this, there are a couple of clarifications that we need to make. The first clarification is this. We are not speaking here about the seal of the Holy Spirit. That is a different seal found in a different part of the Bible. Just to show you a contrast very quickly, the seal of the Holy Spirit is given by the Holy Spirit. It's given after hearing and believing at conversion. And it is directly related to the gifts of the Spirit further along in this series. We're going to speak about some of the gifts of the Spirit. In contrast to that, the seal of the living God is given by an angel coming from the east. It is given just before the falling of the seven last plagues. It is given to those serving God. It is synonymous with the Father's name and directly related to God's law. We're going to see that as we work through our subject this evening. It is placed in the forehead and it is an outward identifying mark of God's people through obedience. You see, what God is doing right here is that God is coming and He's saying, I'm about to return and I'm going to draw a differentiation between my people and those who are in rebellion against me. And so you have in the book of Revelation, as we mentioned before, you have these great contrasts in the book of Revelation. You have 
Babylon versus Jerusalem. You have the woman in white versus the great harlot. You have three unclean spirits versus three angels. You have the seal of God versus the mark of the beast. And we could go on and on down through the list. You have all these contrasts between good and evil. And so here we are introduced to the seal of the living God. Now, some people ask, well, isn't this just given to Jewish people? We noticed this in question time the other night. The 144,000 that are mentioned here, the Bible says 144,000 of all the tribes of Israel. We noticed that there were two different kinds of Israel spoken of in the Bible. There is literal Israel and there is symbolic Israel. If you read the list of tribes given in Revelation chapter 7, you will not find the list of literal Israel. Revelation chapter 7 speaks about symbolic Israel and because it speaks about symbolic Israel, it relates directly to us right here, right now. Now, we need to identify, well, what is the seal of God that we are reading about here all about? Let's work our way through it for a moment. First of all, this is a seal or a mark of authority and ownership. It is defining those people that belong to God. Not only is it a seal or mark of authority and ownership, but it must contain the elements of an official political seal, you see, in the Bible. A royal seal contains three elements, and that hasn't changed all the way down through to our day. Those three elements are the name, the title, and the territory over which that person holds jurisdiction. Political seal is exactly the same today. The issue with the seal of God is all about what? Worship, right? Isn't that so? It's all, and we have noticed this night by night. And so when we see that the issue is all about worship and you have those who worship God receive the seal of God, those who worship the beast receive the mark of the beast, if it is related to worship, we have to ask ourselves this fundamental question right here. What right does God have to ask us to worship him? What right does he have to ask us to worship him? Yeah, that's right. He created us, right? Each one of us here is the individual, personal creation of God. Is that a good news? Absolutely, that's good news. None of us came about by mistake. None of us are here by chance. God created us personally, every single one of us here. Praise God. And because God created us, he has the right to ask us to worship him. All right, is there another reason? Is there another reason that God has the right to ask us to worship him? There are two reasons that God has the right to ask us to worship him. Yeah, absolutely, because he redeemed us. He died for us. You know, the good thing about this is that we belong to Jesus Christ twice over. Isn't that good news? We belong to him because he created us and we belong to him because he came down to this earth and he bought us back with his own blood, with his own life on Calvary. We serve a wonderful God, isn't that so? So when we put all of this together, we find that this is a sign of both creation and 
redemption. So the next question that comes up is this. Do you think that these two fundamental principles right here of creation and redemption are important? Do you think they're important? Most assuredly, they are important. Do you think that God would want us to remember that He is our Creator and that He is our Redeemer? Yes, He would want us to remember those things. Now, when we have important events, and our government might want us to remember an important event, what does our government do? Well, they might do a couple of things. Number one, they might proclaim a public holiday, and Australia Day is probably a good example of that. And number two, they might build a monument and most of our towns and cities all have a war memorial, a monument in them. Does God do the same thing? The answer is yes. Does God want us to remember him as our creator? Oh, absolutely he does. Did he build a monument to his creation? Most assuredly he did. And we are surrounded by it. Look out around you and you will see the created works of God surrounding us as a monument to his creative power. But did he proclaim a public holiday when he asked us to remember him as our creator? You know, the good news is that he did. Let me share it with you. Turn with me your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. And of course, here we go all the way back to the creation of our world. Genesis chapter 2. And we will start reading in verse 1. Now, the good thing about this passage right here is that God is not stingy like the government. You see, the government is kind of stingy. If they're going to give you a public holiday, they're going to give it to you once a year and you have to wait all year for that public holiday to come back around again. God's not like that. You see, God understands the world in which we live. He understands the pressure that we are living under. He understands the stresses that come into our lives and into our families to try and tear us apart and to destroy us. And God gave us a circuit breaker. He gave it to us as a gift, and we find it right here, a way of being able to relieve the stress and the tension. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 1, he said, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had made. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because then in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. Friends, I want you to notice what God does right here. He establishes a public holiday and he doesn't leave it once a year. He gives it to you every week. He sets this day aside. The Bible says he sanctifies it. He sets it apart for a holy use. That's the word, what the word sanctified means. It means set apart for a holy use. God's people were to use the Sabbath day as a day of rest. Well, that's not what all that he said. You see, if we go over to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 20, we find that God has more to say. Exodus chapter 20, and here we go to the very center of God's law. Now, I want you to, I want you to think about this for a moment. 
Because right here, we are in the centre of God's law. Now, the other night, we spoke about our world, didn't we? And how in our world, we have the Holy Land. Isn't that so? Palestine. And in the Holy Land, you have the Holy City. In the Holy City, you have the Holy Mountain. On the Holy Mountain, you have the Holy Temple. Around the Holy Temple, there is a courtyard. And then there is a holy place. Then there is a most holy place. And the centerpiece of the most holy place is the Holy Ark of God. And inside the Holy Ark of God, you have the Holy Law of God. Notice that God is drawing us a bullseye to show us what He considers to be most holy here on this earth. And as God draws this bullseye for us, he directs us to the very center of his law. When you go to the center of God's law, what is it that you find? You find the holy Sabbath day, the great reminder that Jesus is our creator, that we did not come about by accident, but that we are the personal, individual creation of God right in the center of his law. And I want you to notice how the Bible describes it right here in Revelation, sorry, in Exodus, that's page um, 69. In Exodus chapter 20 and verse 8, it says this, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Notice what God is doing. He is reminding them, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, reminding them of something already established. Six days shall, work, shall you labor and do your work. Go down to verse 11. He gives us the reason why he established the seventh day each week. He says, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. And so here is what we find, friends. We find that if you go right to the center of God's law, we find a commandment dealing directly with worship. A commandment that points us all the way back to creation. A commandment that points us to Jesus as our creator. Let me show you something else about the Sabbath. Turn with me to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 20. Notice what it says over here in Ezekiel chapter 20. And verse 12. You'll find that on page 344. Ezekiel 20 and verse 12. God says, Moreover, also, I gave them my Sabbaths, to be a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord that sanctifies them. I want you to think about this right here for a moment. The Bible says that the Sabbath is a sign or a seal of sanctification, of redemption. Isn't that so? And so we find that the Sabbath is a memorial, a reminder of both creation and redemption. We find it the center of God's law. We find God directing us right to this particular commandment right here. And so we ask ourselves the question, could it be that the Sabbath is the seal of God? Let me show you something fascinating in the Bible. You see, the Bible here describes the Sabbath as a sign, a sign of redemption. Go with me to Romans chapter 4. 
Let me share with you something the Bible describes, or two words that the Bible uses synonymously. Romans chapter 4 and verse 11. Romans 4 and verse 11, it says, And he received the sign of circumcision, which is a what? A seal. The sign, a seal. And so the Bible plainly says that the Sabbath is a seal of God's redeeming power. It reminds us that he has created us twice over. He created us and then he recreates us through conversion. Don't we serve a wonderful God? Praise the Lord. Okay, so it's a sign, a seal. Now, if we turn our Bibles over to Isaiah chapter 8, we find that this is confirmed once again. Isaiah chapter 8, middle of the Bible, page 280. Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 16, where the Bible says this, bind up the testimony and seal the law amongst my disciples. Notice here that once again, the Bible describes the seal of God being associated with his law. So if you're going to go to the law of God, is there anywhere in the law of God where you find the seal of God? Well, let's turn back over there very quickly and let's have a look, shall we? You see, a seal, a political seal in Bible times and in our day today and in the Bible has three elements. The name of the person who owns that seal, the title of the person, and the territory over which that person holds jurisdiction according to his title. Here we have one here of King George of England. And it has his name, George. It has his title, King, and his territory, Great Britain and Dominions. Is there anywhere in the Bible that we find name, title, and territory of God all combined together. Well, if we go to the center of God's law, if we go to the Sabbath commandment, if we go to that one commandment dealing with the issue of worship, notice what we find right here. Exodus chapter 20 again. Exodus chapter 20. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Going down to verse 11, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Notice what you have right here. You have his name, you have his title, and you have his territory right there in the very center of God's law. So if we're going to look at the Sabbath as being the seal of God, the next question we have to ask ourselves is this it suddenly becomes rather important that we actually understand which day of the week the Sabbath is. We know that it's one out of seven, right? The Bible makes that very clear. But which one? You see, if we don't know which one, then the commandment is a waste of time. We can't, we can't keep it if we don't know which one. The good news is, friends, that the Bible tells us exactly which day of the week it is. Let's turn our Bibles to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, and we will find our answer right here. Luke chapter 23, and we'll begin reading in verse 54. And here, of course, we're reading about the resurrection. And as we read about the resurrection, we find this. The Bible says, And that day, 
not the resurrection, the crucifixion. And that day, that's the day of the crucifixion, was the preparation and the Sabbath drew on. Now, which day of the week did Jesus die on? Absolutely. Jesus died on Friday. Of course, today, we call that Good Friday. Isn't that so? Then it continues on. It says in verse 55, And the women also which came with him from Galilee followed after and beheld the grave and his body and how his body was laid. And they returned and prepared spices and ointments and rested the Sabbath day according to the commandment. So which day comes after Friday according to the Bible? The Sabbath day. And then just to make sure, it goes on in chapter 24 and verse 1. It says, Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came under the sepulchre, bringing the spices which they had and prepared, and certain others with them. We remember this today as Good Friday, Easter Saturday, Easter Sunday. Everybody knows which days of the week these events took place on. And I find it interesting that the Bible here identifies the Sabbath day not as being Sunday, but as being Saturday. Now, there's a new thought, isn't it? So the question is, well, why do most people go to church on Sunday when the Bible says the Saturday is the Sabbath day? That's a very valid question. You see, the early disciples didn't go to church, did not worship on Sunday. They worshipped on Saturday. So you ask the question, well, how did the change come about and who made that change? Well, here comes the answer. To be continued. You've been listening to an M24 media production of The Prophetic Code by speaker-presenter Lyle Southwell. For more information, visit knowthecode.global or call 3ABN Australia Radio on 2 
That was Andrew McLeod singing Beyond Where Eagles Dare. And before that, you heard Jamie George playing Softly and Tenderly. And now let's listen to Malita Fong sing Blessings. This world can't satisfy 
hardest nights are your mercies in Sarah Draggett singing Keep Me From Falling. <laughs> 